This morning's scripture is from Luke 15, 1 through 3, and then 11 through 32, and this is the ESP. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go with my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son that was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked, the, asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son came... Of the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the cat, fatty calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Tyler, come on up. Um, Tyler is no stranger to you, my friend and and elder here at Ethos, and he is going to bring the word to us today. Thanks, Tyler. Morning. If you are a visitor here, we are so glad you're here with us today, and if you uh, call Ethos home, we are glad you are back. As Steve so eloquently uh, read, we are going to cover the story of the prodigal son today, um, as it's more traditionally known, but hopefully you might learn a few new things today about it. So before we dive in, I'm going to pray for our time together. God, you are uh, holy and righteous and good. God, we ask that um, just that you would continue to fill this place today as we hear from your word, and um, learn from your spirit. Lord, we love you and we praise you. 
In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to kind of start us off. We're, today's a day of different types of things, so um, I'm going to do a poll the audience, which we don't normally do. Um, and I apologize in advance because the topic is not exactly joyful. Um, but if you know someone who has cancer or has had cancer, whether they are living or have since passed, would you raise your hand? Okay, wow. So just about everybody in this room had their hand up. Um, I saw an infographic recently with some startling statistics about cancer. And I'm going to read some of them to you here today. Cancer is the second leading cause of death in the United States following heart disease. Roughly 50% of men and 33% of women will be diagnosed with some form of cancer in their lifetime. In 2016 alone, approximately 1.7 million new cancer cases were diagnosed and roughly 600,000 people died of cancer. There are more than 100 known carcinogens, which are essentially things that we are absolutely certain can cause cancer. For those of you in the medical profession, cancer is known, as you know, one of the great imitators. And what that means is, is that the characteristics of the great imitator types of diseases is that they are systemic in nature, can mimic other diseases, and can affect many organs or the body as a whole. Not only can cancer affect the whole body of the cancer victim, but when someone is fighting cancer, it can have a very negative effect on the rest of their family. Listen to one woman's account of her family's struggle with her husband's cancer. During the 11 months when my husband was dying of bladder cancer, few people wanted to hear how he was truly doing. They wanted to hear about hope, courage, and positivity, not about how he was unlikely to survive. I don't blame them. Before I experienced it, I wouldn't have wanted to hear it either. The problem was that we couldn't escape it because his cancer overtook our lives. The only way out was through, and through meant living with the knowledge of pending death and its attendant difficulties and practical realities. Or as one unknown cancer victim's family member put it, and I think this quote's up on the screen, when someone has cancer... The whole family and everyone who loves them does too. Now, I know, as we just saw, everyone in this room just about has experienced with, with cancer, either directly or indirectly, through a family member, friend, coworker, neighbor. And so I want to be extra sensitive um, when we talk about this. But what if I told you that there is a cancer-like spiritual condition that can be just as deadly and just as harmful as physical cancer. And what if I told you that most people don't even realize they suffer from some of the symptoms because they've misdiagnosed themselves? As those of you in the medical profession know, if you misdiagnose a disease, chances are you'll prescribe the wrong cure. So what is this cancer-like spiritual condition? And more importantly, what is the cure? 
I'm glad you asked. We're going to dive in today with three points as we talk about this. Point number one, lawlessness. Point number two, legalism. And point number three, the cure for both. Before we dive in, I want to point out that this message is my best efforts at summarizing two of my favorite books, um, which I think we've got a photo of them as well up on the screen. The Prodigal God by Tim Keller and The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. Now, I've done my best to whittle this down to a three and a half hour sermon, so we won't be here super long. Uh, No, I've read both of these books multiple times, and outside of the Bible, no two books have had a bigger impact on my understanding of God and the Christian life than the two books that you see behind you on the screen. Uh, The Prodigal God is very accessible, and I know several of you have probably already read it. The Whole Christ uh, is a little more in-depth, and it's better suited for uh, the three of you in this room that are both theology and history nerds at the same time. There you go. Um, And actually, as a gift from our church to you today, we've got free copies of The Prodigal God available at the guest table. I think we were able to get the guest table set up. Um, they're, They're in the back. I knew that. They were on the bench at first. So, there should be enough, in, uh, enough copies in here for everyone, at least to have one per family or one per single person. Um, so feel free to grab one of those before you uh, head over to the picnic and grab some food. Okay, let's dive in. You probably noticed that we started with verses 1 through 3 and then skipped forward to verses 11 to 32. Now, unlike my children, I promise you, I did that intentionally. You know, my children will sometimes count, we're learning to count, and they'll say, one, two, seven, 26, 35, you know, but that was by design. And the reason that we did that was because the context of those first three verses in Luke chapter 15 give us an idea on who Jesus was speaking to. Um, The parable we just heard is known as the parable of the prodigal son, but it's not told in isolation. Rather, it's the third in a series of parables that Jesus shares in Luke 15. And the most important piece of information in understanding these parables, especially the one that we're going to cover today, is the original audience. And in verse 1 and 2, we learn that. This is what he says. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, understanding that will have a profound impact on how we interpret the parable later and what it means for us today. You can almost hear the Pharisees yelling, boo, boo Jesus. Who does he think he is hanging out with those people? So Jesus, hearing the grumbles, decides that it's story time. First, he tells the parable of the lost sheep, where we learn that a shepherd, a loving shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go find the single lone lost sheep and bring him back to the flock. That's immediately followed by the parable of the lost coin where a woman with ten silver coins loses one and searches diligently until she finds it. After those two parables, we come to our story today where Jesus kicks it off in verses 11 and 12, which brings us to our first point, lawlessness. Verse 11 and 12. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he, the father, divided his property between them. 
Now, most of you, even if you didn't grow up in going to church, probably have heard some shape or fashion of this story about some sort of prodigal child or prodigal son. Stereotypically, this is someone who um, is kind of a free spirit. They uh, don't usually follow social conventions. Um, They're more a freedom of expression instead of a self-discipline kind of personality. Maybe they get in trouble with the law. We'll call them the wild child, if you will. We're going to use the term lawlessness today as shorthand for this type of lifestyle. And there are three primary symptoms of this lawlessness that we'll see in this younger brother. We have a disregard for authority, reckless living, and extreme guilt and shame. So symptom number one we'll cover first, a disregard for authority. You see, in verse 12, we see the younger son ask his father for his share of the inheritance. This would have been approximately one-third of the father's estate. In biblical times, the elder son would have typically gotten two-thirds, and the younger son would have gotten one-third. What's the big deal, you ask? Maybe the father's loaded. He can spare a little loose change here and there. And the, the problem is, is that's, that's how we would maybe think of it in our culture, but in their culture, this would have been an incredible sign of disrespect. It would have been as if the son went up to the father and said, I wish you were dead, give me the money. As Keller points out in, this, in his book, this was an intensely patriarchal society. Respect for your elders, and particularly one's parents, was of supreme importance. So to ask for the inheritance while Pops was still alive would have been not only incredibly disrespectful, but it also would have been an embarrassment in the community for the entire family. And the father would have been expected to rebuke his son and likely even expel him from the family. Now put yourselves in the shoes of the Pharisees as we continue on in the parable, since again they're likely the primary audience. And it doesn't say this, but I can imagine when they heard Jesus say this about the younger son, they're probably gasping, you know. (gasps) Can you believe he just said that? You know, I mean, this is very, for them, this is mind-blowing. But that's just act one. Let's move on to act two where we learn about symptom number two, reckless living. In verses 13 and 14, it says, Not many days later, the son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Two words in the middle of this group of verses illustrate symptom number two, reckless living. Translation, he went to Vegas, bet it all on double zero, lost everything, and to top it off, the buffets are out of food. That's essentially an American version of what's happening here. We kind of move forward. That that one really, it's pretty self-explanatory. So we move forward to symptom number three, guilt and shame. So he's down and out, doesn't have any money, is hungry. He decides to get a job. Verse 15 and 16, it says, So he went and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And when he was longing to be fed with and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. 
The story keeps getting worse for the Pharisee listeners. You know, it's kind of like, oh, he asked, he did this social faux pas, you know, and then he went and spent all his money. And then he, he went and hung out with the pigs. You know, you can just imagine their, their angst about what's going on here. It would have been one thing for the son to disregard the father's authority, quite another for him to scandal, uh, excuse me, squander his family's wealth, but to work as a servant with the Gentiles and the pigs. This would have been mind-blowing for this culture. In the Greek, the term hired here in verse 15 literally means glued himself or cemented himself. And again, if, if we're putting our, our brains, uh, sitting in the shoes, I should say, of the Pharisees, this would have absolutely angered and floored them. The closest example I can think of in today's society would be a Sooner fan having to go work for a Texas fan out in the fields to help him feed his skunks. Or vice versa if you're a Texas fan. Not that Texas or OU fans are known for their skunk farms, but that's the most dirty animal that I can think of. Um, that would kind of illustrate the level of disgust we're talking about for the Hebrew people here. Has anyone ever been sprayed by a skunk? Okay, good, because I would make sure I stayed far away from you at the picnic this afternoon. Um, Anyway, here he is, he's hit rock bottom and he realizes it because the text essentially says he snapped out of it, he came to himself, is what it says, and he thinks, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but here I perish with hunger? Now, if you're a prodigal son type and you hit rock bottom, you're likely feeling an incredible amount of guilt, shame, and sorrow for your actions. This may or may not mean godly sorrow, the type that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, but at the very least, you've probably got some pretty big regrets as to what you've done and the situation that you find yourself in. Either way, the prodigal son in our story has enough guilt and shame to motivate him to devise a plan to return home. Verse 18 and 19, he says to himself, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Did you notice that last part he just rehearsed there? Treat me as one of your hired servants. Most people think the prodigal's words here are noble and that this is an example of what true repentance looks like. And that's actually what I thought for years and years until I read the two books that I just showed you on the screen. In reality, while it's true that the prodigal's words do show signs of repentance, they also show an incredibly flawed understanding of his relationship with the Father. As Sinclair Ferguson writes, quote-unquote, he is still wrestling with the he whose favor is to be earned lie regarding his relationship with the Father. In other words, the son is convinced that the father deals with his children on the basis of their works, but as we'll see shortly, he's in for a big surprise. As the son returns home, we read in verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him, as Steve so wonderfully portrayed to our, to our little ones just a few moments ago. Sinclair Ferguson continues, as he approaches home, his once despised father breaks all social convention in that the boy should have been received with a shaming ceremony, but instead he runs to greet him. The prodigal now stammers out, excuse me, 
now stammers out his rehearsed words through the hugs and kisses of his father. Verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the final rehearsed words, treat me as one of your hired servants, are smothered by his father's embrace. He will not have his son return home only on condition that he does penance in order to work his way back into his father's grace. He does not need to repent enough to be accepted. Quote, unquote. You can almost hear the father's excitement in verse 22 to 24. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us see and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. I'm sorry, and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, if you're like I was for so long when I read this story, you're probably thinking, what a beautiful story, Tyler. Great stuff. Now let's pray and go eat some lunch. Not so fast. Well, that is a very key part of the story. It's only half the story. This brings us to our next point. Legalism. You see, the story started with the phrase, there was a man who had two sons. And that's where we go next. While both lawlessness and legalism are very damaging, they are not equal in terms of their danger according to Jesus' parable. Let's face it. If you're like the younger brother and you're eating with the pigs, at some point you typically know it. You don't usually think, hmm, I wonder if this is sanitary. Rather, most of the time you just don't care. You are living life how you please. Legalism, on the other hand, is much more subtle, which makes it more dangerous. A legalist is great, usually, at following all the rules and is usually outwardly very moral But a legalist is usually following the rules for their own selfish reasons, which means they are just as far from the father as the lawless younger brother. As we'll see, legalism is also a cancer-like spiritual condition that to some degree affects everyone in this room, and we likely don't even realize it. As Tim Keller puts it, one of the surest signs that you may not grasp the unique radical nature of the gospel is that you are certain you do. So we're going to walk through the three symptoms of legalism that the elder brother in our story exhibits. They are anger and bitterness, slavish and dutiful motives, and a self-righteous attitude towards younger brother types. The story continues in verses 25 to 28. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew new to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Apparently he'd never been to a party. And he said to him, the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But the brother was angry and refused to go in. So symptom number one, anger and bitterness, right here, verse 28. As Keller writes, one of the first signs you have an elder brother or legalistic spirit is that when your life doesn't go as you want, you aren't just sorrowful, but deeply angry and bitter. Elder brothers believe that if they live a good life, they should get a good life. That God owes them a smooth road if they try very hard to live up to his standards. What happens then when things go wrong? Well, if things go wrong and you've done everything right, 
then you typically get angry at God. For example, let's say you're, you've had a great day spiritually, you've done your quiet time, you, you prayed this morning, you even maybe shared Jesus with a coworker at work, and on your way home, or on your way to the, your child's dance recital, or the big ball game with, with your buddies, or a night out with your wife or your husband, um, you get in a fender bender. Now, if you struggle with legalism, odds are you're going to get really frustrated at that. Because what's happened is, is you've done your part for God, so to speak, but God didn't do his. He caused you to miss out on these wonderful plans for your life. Deep down, you're probably thinking, whether you can admit it or not, Lord, I held up my end of the bargain today, and this is the thanks I get. Why did you let this happen? I don't know about you, but I've never felt like that. Or maybe you've been falling short of those standards that you set for yourself. What happens then if things go wrong and you have a legalistic heart? Well, in that case, you're typically crushed and you'll be angry at yourself, beating yourself up over failing to live up to your own standards of moral goodness. And in the fender bender example, rather than being angry at God, you view it as more of a form of punishment for not following the rules today. Either way, your moral observance was likely more rooted in your desire to control your environment and God than it was in your delight or joy in God, which leads us to symptom number two of legalism, slavish and dutiful motives. The father in our parable breaks social convention again by leaving the party and coming out of the house to implore his elder son to come to the party. The elder son response in verse 29 is very telling. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never obeyed your, or I never disobeyed your command, but you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I'm not sure if goats were like a delicacy or something, I don't know. Seems to me like a good steak dinner would have been more appetizing, but in their culture for him it was like, hey, what's the deal, pops? The elder's brother response here reveals the true motives behind his obedience. He wanted the father's gifts, not the father. He was performing his duty without any genuine sense of delight. In the Christian life, this can look like genuine spirit-wrought obedience, but it could just as easily be a moralistic attempt to control God. Uh, Jimmy Fallon on The Tonight Show a few years ago had a segment that he did uh, for misheard song lyrics. And there were songs, essentially the lyrics, they sounded very similar to the real thing but upon further review, we're very different from the actual song. Now, I'm going to read a few of my favorites, and I can tell my age by the ones that don't get laughter because that means you probably aren't old enough to know what the songs are. But here we go. I want to rock and roll all night and part of every day. (laughs) Not the whole day, just a smidgen. Hold me closer, Tony Danza. My son loves this one. Knock, knock, knocking on Kevin's door. <laughs> I think they were talking about Tulsa when, they, when they, uh, somebody wrote this one. We built this city, we built this city on sausage rolls. <laughs> when my wife and I moved to Tulsa, there were three things on every street corner that we noticed. A church, a liquor store, and a donut shop. Uh, Bob Dylan's 
classic. The ants are my friends, and they blow in in the wind. And then my personal favorite, one guy that posted when he was younger, he's from out east, he thought that the Lion King song was Pennsylvania. What's the bottom line? Slavish and dutiful obedience can look and sound like spirit rot obedience, but on careful inspection, we see that it's actually miles apart. Now our last symptom of legalism, number three, self-righteous attitude towards younger brother types. In verse 30, we see the elder brother's true colors once more when he says, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Notice the disdain in his, in his voice. This son of yours, he won't even call him or acknowledge that he's his brother. Laura and I do this sometimes with the kids. When the kids are behaving, it's, oh, look at my child. Look how wonderful he or she is. And when they're misbehaving, can you believe your son <laughs> or your daughter? That's essentially what the elder brother's doing here. He has such disdain for what has occurred with his younger brother that he can't even bring himself to call him a brother. This self-righteous attitude towards younger brother types plays out in a variety of ways, but one is the frustration and disdain you feel when people around you don't live up to your standards of morality. You can't believe someone would act a certain way. You think to yourself, I would never do anything as bad as that. Keller quotes one of his old seminary professors that sums up in a sentence the problem with someone who struggles with legalism when he says, quote, The main thing between most people and God is not so much their sins, but their damnable good works. In other words, there are two ways to be lost and far from God. One way is to be really, really bad, and the other way is to be really, really good for the wrong reasons. As Sinclair Ferguson points out, the alarming message here is that the spirit of the elder brother, the legalist, is more likely to be found near the father's house than in the pig farm, or in concrete terms, in the congregation and among the faithful, and I might add, in the heart of an elder, myself. This brings us to point number three, the cure for both. Take a look at how the father responds to the legalistic heart of the elder brother in verses 31 and 32. The father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, I don't know about you, but the father's response in the parable floors me. I can assure you, if this was my child, my response would have been more along the lines of, son, quit your whining and come back inside. But that's not what this father does. No, he responds with the same grace and love and tenderness toward the elder brother's legalism as he does the younger brother's lawlessness. Listen to verse 31 again. Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. He does this, I think, because his younger brother's lawlessness and his elder brother's legalism are, in essence, two sides of the same coin. Tim Keller points this out in his foreword to Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Whole Christ. In it, he writes, 
both see obedience as something imposed on us by God whose love is conditional. The only difference is that the legalistic heart wearily assumes the burden while the lawless heart casts it off insisting that if God is really loving, he wouldn't ask for it. Christians may not exhibit all the symptoms of either of these brothers, but we can still struggle with lawlessness and legalism to some degree or another. And the tricky part is, is that if you think that your cancer-like spiritual condition is one of these two errors, then you've misdiagnosed the disease. Simply viewing one of these two errors as the problem virtually guarantees you'll move towards the other error in response. If you're struggling with legalism, the temptation will be to think, stop being so uptight. God doesn't really care if you're obedient or not. He loves you anyway, which has a grain of truth to that in Christ. And if you're struggling with lawlessness, the temptation will be to try and pick yourself up by your bootstraps and try harder. Or in the words of the Nike slogan, just do it. Again, there's a nugget of truth there. We are through the power of the Spirit to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But the deep depths of the soul and heart bent of someone who struggles with legalism and lawlessness is that God deals with you on the basis of works and not of grace. But if you understand that legalism and lawlessness are simply different manifestations of the same disease, that changes everything. Because if the disease is the same, you medical folks know the cure is the same. And the cure is this, and this should be on the screen as well. The only answer for your spiritual cancer is the radical and gracious love of the Father. You see, the Father came out to both sons and expressed his love and grace to them. With the younger son, while he was still a long way off, the father ran to him, reminding his son, I'm sorry, ran to him, smothered him with love, and organized a party to celebrate his return. With the elder son, while he was still outside, the father also came out to him and reminded his son, you are all, all, always with me and all that I have is yours. Just like the words to the song we sang earlier, who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. And friends, in what way has our heavenly father's love most clearly been displayed to you and I? How did he most tangibly express that love? He did it, of course, by sending his son, Jesus, our true elder brother. You see, in the parable, the elder brother in this story refused to step out of the comforts of his home and go into a faraway land to rescue his younger brother. But in our story, Jesus, our true elder brother, willingly stepped out of the comforts of heaven to go to a faraway land and rescue us from our guilt and shame. In the parable, the elder brother was unwilling to pay the price for his younger brother to come back into the family. But in our story, Jesus, our true elder brother, joyfully paid the price to welcome us back into God's family. In the parable, the elder brother was angry. The father slaughtered the fattened calf and clothed the younger brother with his finest robe. But in our story, Jesus, our true elder brother, willingly endured the cross so that we could be forever clothed with the robe of his righteousness. 
to the degree you see how much it costs Jesus to bring you into the household of God, to that degree will the symptoms of lawlessness and legalism melt away from your heart. And you'll find rest again in the words we sang earlier. In my father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. Who the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, you are. Let's pray. Father, we, we confess that, that to some degree or another we all struggle with one or both of these things, God, lawlessness and legalism. God, we, we need your help. Lord, through the power of your Spirit and the death and resurrection of your Son, you have provided a way for us to overcome the legalistic and lawless bent of our hearts. God, we ask that you would do that in each of us in this room today. Lord, please continue with your presence here today as we continue in worship this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We come now to our time of celebrating the Lord's Supper. You know, in, in the Scriptures, we find many names or titles for the Lord's Supper. We find the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Communion. But one of my favorite names of celebrating our Lord's death is, is called a love feast, where the body of Christ comes together and celebrates the great love that, that God has for us when He sent His Son to die in our place. Tyler well described this great father's love for both the lawless son and the legalistic son. As we celebrate the Lord's table, we celebrate his love for us, being both lawless and legalistic. Both. Sometimes at the same time. We are called to look at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as our only hope. We look back at what He has done and trust in Him alone for right standing with God. But at the same time as we look back, we also look forward to the day when we will once again feast with our Savior, when we will be with Him as the disciples were with him on that night. We will see him face to face and know that it was all about Jesus all along. So as we celebrate the Lord's table today, our love feast, we celebrate the past and what Jesus has done, and we also celebrate the future for what will be ours in the days ahead. On that night so long ago, the Lord Jesus 
took the bread. And after he had blessed it, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As we celebrate the table together, it is a great reminder that it's not about how hard we try. It's not about how well we keep the law. But it's all about what Jesus has done for us. So if you are here this morning, you know Jesus is your Savior, if you know that you are invested wholly upon what He has done for your entrance into heaven, welcome to the table.